It is my honor to introduce to you today Dr. Burjoy Shenergan from Bilkent University, a remarkably dedicated and innovative researcher who has been pushing the boundaries of knowledge in a range of intriguing areas in psychology. Known for her interdisciplinary approach, Dr. Urgan's work delves into a myriad of topics such as gender attribution, personality prediction, and visual perception, among others. She integrates these seemingly disparate fields with cutting-edge technologies including artificial intelligence, robotics, and visual, virtual reality, creating a fascinating nexus of research that is as diverse as it is interconnected. Dr. Urgen's research does not shy away from the complexities and challenges of experimental psychology. In fact, she tries in this setting employing meticulous technologies, meticulous methodologies in the design and execution of our experiments, all while navigating the intricacies of emerging technologies. Additionally, Dr. Ergen has undertaken a significant study into auditory and visual perceptions. Her research provides a unique insight and contributes to our growing understanding of the mind's inner workings. Dr. Ergen's innovative work extends to examining human brain patterns in response to robots exhibiting different, different appearances and functional gestures. Her findings in this area provide invaluable insights that could shape the future development of androids and our interaction between them. In closing, Dr. Gens is a testament to the power of interdisciplinary research, the pursuit of diverse interests, and the application of robust scientific methodologies. Her work continues to enlighten our understanding of human cognition, perception, and interaction in this era of technological advancement. I give you Dr. Burja Aysenurke. Öncelikle geldiğiniz için çok teşekkür ederim. İngilizceye geçiyorum şimdi. You started your bachelor's in computer engineering in Bilkent. Then you got your MS in cognitive science. How was the process of deciding for you while switching those majors like you started in computer engineering and you got cognitive science? How did that happen? Yeah, yeah. thanks for uh, inviting me. So, um, so it was kind of a natural one for me, you know, mentally speaking, because um, since my high school years, I've been thinking about, um, you know, uh, studying medicine. And if I study medicine, I was thinking I would study neurology or psychiatry. So I always had an interest in uh, human cognition and human brain. 
Uh, but I also loved math, you know, mathematics when I was in um, uh, high school. So, you know, and I, I, I had to make a decision whether engineering or medicine. And then I, I chose engineering because I was interested in, um, you know, mathematics and, you know, computers were just me around those times, you know, I just had my, com uh, my first computer when I was in high school. So, you know, I was very interested in understanding computers and, you know, mathematics, etc. But then when I got into computer science, um, I realized that uh, I really miss biology. Uh, I really, um, you know, uh, although I love math, I, I always felt like, you know, biology is missing. Uh, so I took some courses from you know molecular biology, but none of them um, you know satisfied my um, you know interest because um, you know they were you know molecular biology great, but uh, I think I my whole focus was on the brain. So I I was basically expecting to see something about the brain, uh, so and I couldn't find that. Uh, and then um, I basically you know started working in the library, uh, working meaning like you know studying in the library. Uh, I was basically looking for all these neuroscience books, um, uh, you know, uh, I basically got into, um, you know, uh, the medical schools, uh, there I, I was basically checking the syllabi of medical schools and, you know, trying to find out what kind of, you know, neuroscience books they actually, you know, students study, if I was in a medical school, what kind of books I would be reading right now, etc. So I basically, you know, found those books and, you know, luckily the camp library was, you know, quite rich in that. So I basically found those books and, you know, in my spare time, whenever I have spare time, I mean, it was kind of difficult to find a spare time in engineering, but whenever I find some time, you know, I, I was basically um, studying, um, you know, these biology books, uh, neuroscience books, and psychology books, psychiatry books. So I was very interested. And then, uh, but meanwhile, I was continuing my education in computer science because there were definitely courses that I enjoyed a lot, like, for example, logic for computer science, formal languages and automata theory. I was, I would say, I, I was more interested in the theoretical aspects of computer science rather than more like software engineering or things like that. So this is why, uh, you know, I think it was my third year that I um, got into AI, artificial intelligence. That was a course that kind of, um, you know, uh, attracted me most, and because it was the, uh, you know, of course that uh, that was the interface, you know, between computer science and you know biology, neuroscience, psychology, etc. So uh, we had this uh, nice book, which is the classical book, um, you know, Russell and Norwich's uh, AI book. Um, I think still the classical book in AI courses. So we were reading that course, and I really like uh, reading the book's prefaces. You know, like this, um, you know, the, the part where um, the the author kind of talks about you know the history of the book, etc. And then when I was reading that, I basically saw the term cognitive science. It was the first time I kind of heard about that. I knew psychology, I knew neuroscience, I knew psychiatry, but. You know, like cognitive science term was something new to me. And I then started, okay, what is cognitive science? Because it was basically talking that, uh, you know, AI is actually part of cognitive science. Cognitive science is an interdisciplinary field where people from different fields come together to understand the human brain, human mind, and AI is definitely contributive for that, etc. And then I, I felt like, okay, so I'm in the right place. So it's not like I'm not really in the wrong program, so I'm in the right place. 
Then basically I started reading more about cognitive science. So what's cognitive science? It was new to me. And I realized that maybe we'll talk later. Uh, cognitive science was born at the time computers were discovered actually in the 1950s. And then because people who actually discovered the computers and people who are working on the work computation, they are actually also participating in cognitive sciences. They are kind of you know, contributing to the, uh, you know, um, uh, the, the growing of cognitive science. This is why I felt like, okay, you know, I'm, I'm really in the right community. But then, of course, while I was learning that, while I was studying the AI course, I, I felt like, you know, we were learning, for example, neural networks. So we were learning all these, you know, back, back propagation algorithms, etc. You know, we were doing, um, you know, assignments, homework. So I enjoyed a lot. You know, I really enjoyed a lot. But the question was just basically, you know, uh, nagging me all the time. So it's like, how, how about the brain? You know, are these neurons, you know, are the neurons in the brain, are they really working this way? Or, you know, I was, I, I realized that we were making some abstractions. You know, uh, neurons were more complex, and you know when we were trying to model them, and we were you know kind of making assumptions. But I was really interested in, but you know, this is artificial intelligence. But how about biological intelligence? Can I learn more about biology about that? So that basically uh, uh, that kind of led me to actually delve more into cognitive sciences. And you know, like uh, move away a little bit from pure computer science and then to cognitive science. And then I was looking for programs, you know, where I can go. And then I found that there were actually two programs in Turkey in cognitive science. One was uh, Metu Cognitive Science Program. One was Bozici Cognitive Science Program. And uh, Metu Cognitive Science Program somehow, uh, you know, uh, satisfied my needs more in terms of its program. Um, and, you know, there were people from computer science, psychology, philosophy, linguistics, etc. Only neuroscience was missing, that piece was missing, but I couldn't find it anywhere. I actually talked to some um, uh, people in medical schools in Ankara, you know, the top schools, mm -hmm. and uh, I actually went and talked to uh, professors there just to say that, you know, I'm an engineer, but, you know, I would like to uh, work in neuroscience. Uh, can I, uh, you know, can I apply to your PhD program or MS program in neuroscience? And the answer is no, uh, because uh, at those times, maybe still, I don't know, um, neuroscience was kind of only uh, open to people from biology backgrounds, right? They were not uh, open to people from engineering backgrounds or mathematical backgrounds. So the answer was definitely a no from medical schools. And then I basically said, okay, so then I think the best way for me is to actually use my current background knowledge and to delve into this. This is how I got into actually metacognitive science. So you were interested in the mind and the computers and you started connecting them in the AI course. Okay, so the natural question that arises is, uh, in your view, do you think mind is about computation or something else? Uh-huh. Yeah, that's a good question. So, you know, this is definitely one of the um, philosophical and methodological yeah. questions in cognitive science. You know, early times, as I was just mentioning in the other question, um, in 1950s, uh, you know, it, it is around the time computers were discovered. You know, the first computer was discovered. And then uh, this cognitive science is was also born around those times. So naturally, since people who are 
working on um, you know computer science uh, are also somehow some of them at least are cognitive scientists such as um, you know people like uh, Neville and Simon for example right so you basically definitely see the computer metaphor right for the human mind so because there is something that human humans created you know and you know it has a memory it has a ram it has a cpu etc etc so there is something working that you can see and this is how you know it's it's very appealing to say that oh you know i think i'm also doing this because you created something and you probably created that thinking that you are also maybe doing these kinds of things this is why it was so natural to think that uh, mind or cognition or brain is like like a computation, like a computer. So it, the, the computer metaphor uh, was uh, quite popular uh, for for a certain period of time in cognitive science. But today, uh, you know, uh, we know that you know learning more about the brain. You know, after we learn more about the brain. You know, after um, you know, we get all this you know empirical knowledge in the last maybe seventy years or so. Uh, we know that the brain is not just the computer, right? So you can talk about the neurons doing some computations, sure. right? Uh, so you can basically uh, frame your questions in terms of neurons doing some kind of computation, but that kind of computation does not necessarily mean that it works like a computer okay so this is a, so and the whole aim of uh, for example computational neuroscience today is actually to try to find out um, you know how uh, a certain set of neurons at this small scale but at a larger scale the set of all the neurons in the brain you know at a larger scale how what kind of information processing they do you know what kind of um, you know connections they have, and when they interact with each other, what kind of information um, they are exchanging. These are kind of questions that um, you know we ask in the framework of computational neuroscience. Um, so definitely, computation didn't go anywhere. So computation is still there, but the simple idea that the brain is a computer in the very literal sense, I think is very simple uh, way of seeing things. Uh, so in AI research, people are trying to uh, get inspired from brain a lot. And you, since you know a lot about that also, you have your papers in machine learning too. So um, how many aspects of the neurons do you think AI currently captures? Is there anything missing that you know what what what is what can be inspired more from the brain? Yeah. So yeah, that's a great question. Um, so I can only talk maybe within the framework of what I do. Uh, for example, in vision. So I study visual perception. So I can talk more about vision because I'm not very familiar with the other. Um, you know, types of, uh, I don't know, processes, for example, in maybe somatosensory cortex or motor cortex, uh, there are definitely, you know, some similarities. Anyways, so if we talk about, for example, primary visual cortex, which is V1, uh, the region where uh, the retinal input from our eyes, you know, uh, you know, go, um, you know, 
first pass through LGN, which is a subcortical region, but then it's the, the IV1 is the first cortical region that actually receives uh, you know, input, visual input. So if you look at that uh, V1, for example, models in the literature, you see that V1 models consist of, uh, this will be a little bit jargon, but uh, for example, they consist of some Gabor filters. They are basically some, you know, they are doing some operations where, uh, for example, whenever you see a scene, whenever you see an object, uh, actually V1 is not capturing that object uh, you know, immediately. What Nivan does is Nivan uh, actually finds out the edges in that object. Mm. So this is why we say that it does some kind of a double filtering. So once it finds those edges, for example, it basically sends this uh, edge information to the to a higher level, for example, V2, and in V2, these edges are somehow combined together for a more complex shape, and then it basically goes to higher level regions until, for example, infratemporal context, where we know that object recognition is, you know, um, somehow, um, you know, like we, we basically at least recognize complex objects and it's associated with IT. So we know that the brain, at least the visual system, has a hierarchical structure, which means that when you see an object and you say, oh, I perceive a cup, you know, it seems like it is so instant, it's so, it just happens, and you, you may realize that, oh, my visual cortex does it. No, actually, not only one brain region uh, captures the object or perceives the object at any moment. What it does is, it basically goes through, like the neural networks, right? It basically goes through a lot of processing stages, and V1 is the first stage. So, Returning to the question, this is kind of a background. So, for example, in V1, we know that, okay, there are these edge, um, you know, uh, edges uh, or edge, uh, you know, cells that uh, ex export these edges. But we know that these cells are around 15 or 20% of the total number of V1 cells. How about the rest, right? Nobody talks about that, right? Nobody talks about that. We, we know that, okay, it is very well established that these, there are definitely these kinds of neurons, and, you know, we basically start from that, and we form all of our theories on that, but there are definitely neurons that do some different kind of computations that we do not know very well right now. Or, for example, if you look at the literature, again, uh, there are... Um, historically speaking, uh, forgotten uh, cells uh, that are called N-stop cells, for example. Uh, these cells are, um, you know, responding to uh, angles, but not in the simple sense, like movement of angles, etc. So, for example, in many models, you don't see N-stop cells. You usually see simple cells, complex cells, and then you go to tem uh, higher uh, cortices like IT, and for example, we don't see much about N-stop cells. So in that sense, there are definitely a lot of things that we abstract away uh, while we are modeling. But I think it depends on the question of interest. Sometimes, you know, maybe what an N-stop cell does maybe is not very relevant to what you are interested and, uh, you know, you simplify it. But, you know, in the, in the long term, I mean, in the long run, if, real, if, if one day we would like to really simulate the whole brain, 
considering the all possible neurons, all types of neurons, etc. I think we have to, uh, you know, we have to integrate. Yeah, we have to integrate a lot of other, um, you know, uh, components into our models. Right now, um, we know that, you know, if a vision model, for example, does an object recognition task or an action recognition task with the given architecture, we say, oh, okay, great. You know, maybe the brain is doing it that way. But uh, we always know that in computational neuroscience. For a given data, there are indefinite number of models that can explain that data. And which model is the best one? You know, how do you choose that model, etc.? We need to have some biological constraints for that. Anyway, so the, the, the short answer is that there are definitely things that uh, we abstract away, we kind of ignore uh, while they are being modeled. Uh, of course, I'm not very knowledgeable about, for example, molecular level. Uh, I am mostly working at a systems level and a cognitive level. So, for example, there are definitely computational modelers who are modeling uh, molecular events, for example. And I'm sure that there are definitely things that we do not know yet uh, there as well. Uh, my, my knowledge is mostly at, at a cellular uh, and uh, at a cognitive system level. So, But even in that domain, I know that there are things that we no, no. Yeah, exactly. Okay, uh, so I will shift the topic a little bit. While you are shifting from uh, computer engineering to cognitive science, how did your environment take take it? How did your parents take it? How did your friends take it? It, it might have been difficult. Oh yeah, definitely. I mean, my, my parents, let me start from my family, my parents kind of questioned first because uh, my parents were thinking that if I'm, you know, in engineering and, you know, around those times, uh, I mean, it, computer science was just booming, right? Yeah. So people were thinking that, you know, if you uh, study computer science, you will make a lot of money, you know, you will study as a software engineer in one of the big tech companies and you will make a lot of money, etc. So when I, uh, I think it was my third year that I was taking this AI course again and then I realized that, okay, I'm not going to be a software engineer and then I did, I did internships, you know, like mandatory internships in companies, one in Istanbul, one in Ankara, in, in really highly reputed um, companies. Anyway, and I definitely decided that I'm not going to be a <laughs> And then after, I mean, that the, the lifestyle, the way you work, the way you approach problems, kind of, those, I, I felt like I was looking for more discovery kind of things, mm-hmm. rather than more product-oriented, um, yeah. you know, yeah. things. So I, I kind of realized that I was more like a scientist rather than uh, an engineer. Yeah. So this is why I basically... Definitely decided around my third year. I told my parents that I'm I'm going. I don't know what exactly I will study, but I'm not going to be a software engineer. So I will be an academic. So I, I definitely knew that around that time. My parents were first shocked, but then they kind of said that you know we trust you, whatever you like, uh, you know you can continue. They were yeah, they were quite uh, happy and they were quite okay with that. But in terms of my friends. Uh, especially my friends in computer science. Oh, you know, <laughs> I can imagine. Uh, I mean, interdisciplinarity was not that popular around those times. You know, I, I think right now, for example, I have many students who are coming from engineering uh, departments to my lab, and you know, it's so natural. I don't know what they, um, you know, 
uh, what they uh, experience, um, you know, with their friends. But mm-hmm. around those times, uh, when I to- told my friends, I think it was my third or fourth year, when I told that, oh, you know, I'm uh, studying for this exam, so I am basically, you know, uh, doing some, um, you know, uh, studying for some psychology books, or I'm studying for some neuroscience books, or whatever. And what, like, you know, what are you doing? Like, <laughs> what is the, you know, like relationship with computer science? Because everybody was so focused on being a software engineer uh, that, uh, and you know, games were so popular around those times. People were interested in developing games. And some people were interested in graphics, you know, so many things. I mean, there are definitely so many things that you can do in computer science as well. But I think I had a different interest. And then this is why I knew that I wouldn't be in those classical, traditional paths. Uh, So when I told this to my friends, they said, you know, like, you know, they, they kind of, they were shocked. And they said... And especially when I, for example, say, because in Turkey the options were uh, kind of limited, when I say that psychology is a possibility, some of them were like, oh, you know, psychology, social sciences, you know, they're like an engineer. Why would you go to a social science, right? So uh, I never I never saw psychology uh, as a, you know, like as a, as a, as a discipline that, that that you should humiliate or something like that because it was something about human cognition, human brain, and it's the, it's a scientific thing. And I was reading books, I was reading all these methodologies. It looks so scientific, you know. So there must be something wrong about what people know about this. And then similarly for neuroscience, when I say that you know it may be also medicine, people were. Oh, you know, like you will, you will study medicine right now after <laughs> computer science, etc. People were not definitely accepting. I would say my friends were quite, um, you know, like negative about that. But I think uh, I kind of didn't listen to them. <laughs> I think so. I, I think I didn't listen to them because I think I was basically having the first-hand experience myself. My my thing was not like. Oh, you know, this sounds interesting. Let me do that, and then you know, uh, trying to understand how people react. I was never like that. I basically already decided in my mind what I'd like to do, or at least I was trying to decide what I'd like to do, and I was basically accumulating evidence, you know, like over time. <laughs> and because I had that evidence by my readings, etc., I, I, I kind of everything looked so natural to me. Uh, but you know, for a for a person who doesn't know anything about the field, of course, you basically, what is the relationship? Even right now, for example, whenever I go to a doctor, for example, when I'm talking, you know, uh, they under- they realize that I never, like, reveal myself as, you know, I am a neuroscientist or whatever. Uh, sure. I never reveal. But somehow they understand that I know something, yeah. you know, because of the questions maybe I ask. And then they, oh, you know, where did you study? And when I say computer engineering, they were like, again, <laughs> what? Like, how, how did you go from computer engineering to neuroscience? How did that happen? So there are still all these barriers, you know, that people, these, all these borders. And I, I mean, uh, I mean, it was difficult, you know, to change paths. So whenever, for example, I, um, you know, move away from computer science to psychology or to neuroscience, Definitely the conventions are different, the way you study is different, so many things are different. But if you know what you'd like to do, then those 
things are just simple things that you need to overcome, right? So it's kind of hard to tell this to other people if you don't make the effort, but if you have a goal of understanding something, you know, big, <laughs> then uh, it, it just makes so much sense. You seem very happy with the decision, so I'm just gonna still ask, uh, do you ever regret not going from going to software engineering path or do you still imagine what could have been or does there come to your mind? Yeah, I never regret it. I never regret it. I think uh, I never regret it. The only thing um, that I thought sometimes was uh, would I be good enough you know, in this discipline. So there were times when I thought about that. So for example, when I was studying for a psychology course, let's say that all, uh, all my friends were psychologists or all my friends were linguists. Mm -hmm. So they were grasping certain things uh, earlier than me because they had background. So I had to make up for that background, right? Or for example, in neuroscience. So I always, you know, there were times when I said, you know, I need to study really hard to make up for this Thing, to make up for this, you know, there were times when I felt like I should study more, I should study more because, you know, I, but I never regretted the fact that, you know, I actually moved away from there. I just knew that uh, it would be hard uh, because, you know, while I was studying computer science, people were studying something different and then uh, when, I'm, when I'm somewhere, you know, for example, when I was in PhD, Um, you know, in the cognitive science department, people were coming from different backgrounds, and I knew that you know when I when they take a course, for example, everybody is understanding it differently because people have different levels, you know, in terms of their knowledge in different topics. So, but I realized later then that actually this is inherent in cognitive science. Wherever you go, for example, maybe we'll talk later. For example, my cognitive science department uh, at UCSD, uh, you know, in the United States was the first cognitive science department in the world, and I was thinking that, you know, everything would be perfect there. But what I realized is that, I mean, everything was great, but uh, the fact that coming from different disciplines uh, would make a problem when, while you are taking, you know, different types of courses was still a problem there. So whenever, for example, you are taking a computational course, people, you know, who are coming from more social science backgrounds We're having difficulty, but people who have computational backgrounds were quite, you know, good at that. But the, the opposite happens when you are taking a biology course, for example. People who are coming from a biology background were quite, you know, uh, I don't know, they didn't have much difficulty, but people who are coming from engineering backgrounds had difficulty. So th this problem isn't solved yet, and I don't think that it is. It will be solved <laughs> until. Until we basically have and maybe undergraduate training or something like that, where um, you basically expose people to these things. I think one of the problems is that in Turkey and maybe in other uh, countries, I don't know, we have this sayısal sözel, you know, like uh, I don't know, quantitative fields, qualitative fields, oh, yeah. and we have these all these borders. For example, if you study quant, if you are labeled as a quantitative person. You cannot study qualitative things, or if you are in a more social sciences thing, you cannot study. I think these borders are kind of preventing people to actually realize their potentials. Yeah. Because I see many, for example, in Bilkent, 
I see, I have many psychology students. They, they basically, they are in the psychology program, but they have so, so, I mean, so, they have great computational skills. For example, I have some students who are doing computational modeling work. And I have some, for example, engineering students who are really good at, for example, recruiting human subjects to their psychology experiments. So I think showing students um, or like exposing students to different to these different kinds of skills mm -hmm. and telling them that they can actually manage everything. It's not, you know, you have only these skills and you cannot do the others. I think as long as we get away from that, we can have a condition where people really, you know, start trying to understand, for example, a big thing like human brain, you know, by combining a lot of different and you know, methodologies, different skills, etc. Those barriers you are mentioning between quantitative and qualitative um, aspects, those barriers should be knocked down, yes, but how, how do we do that? Do you have any opinions about that, how to do that? So I think the first is that, the first is to just uh, maybe just forget about <laughs> to forget the, uh, the the the border words like you know you are a quantitative you're a, a science math person and you're a social science person. I think you should just avoid using these kind of things. Even I think in high is, school. Even in high school. I mean, even in high school. I mean, I, I am not opposed to specialization. You can definitely specialize, but it doesn't mean that. For example, if, while I was in high school. Uh, we didn't take any psychology courses. My first introduction to real scientific psychology was uh, at Bishkent when I was an undergrad, I took some psychology courses, right? So uh, when I was in high school, I didn't know that I had an interest in psychology, but it was more like about understanding my how my mind works, etc., etc. And I didn't know that there is a scientific way of doing it, actually, until I come to university. So this is why I, I think... Uh, I mean, I think this is a big, big issue, and I think uh, we need to really like sit down people who are interested in that. We need to sit down, etc. But one thing, one example I can give, for example, from the United States, is that when I went there for my PhD, I actually uh, experienced that people, uh, people basically entered the university. Uh, not with a university uh, exam, you know, uh, like our exam, yeah. uh, where uh, they actually, um, you know, have their GPAs uh, and, you know, they have some scores, etc. And, and they also write a statement, a research statement, kind of statement of purpose. And then based on that, based on the quotas of universities, they are somehow assigned to these universities. And once they go there, at least at UCSD, in the first two years, they do not have to declare a major. So they don't have to say, for example, you know, I am in computer engineering or, or I am in psychology or I am coming to science. They basically start taking courses, okay, in the first two years. And they try to see what they are interested in. And after these two years, they basically uh, say, oh, okay, you know, I realize that I really like biology. Then they say that at the end of the second year, they declare their major. And then in the last two years of their education, they basically specialize on that. So this is, for example, one way of it. Or, for example, specifically for cognitive science, let me say that. 
because cognitive science is such a big discipline, nobody could imagine that it can actually uh, have an undergrad program. <laughs> because even at the grad level, we cannot manage that, right? Well, uh, the way it worked, uh, it works in at UCSD was that so students enter the program. And then uh, it's cognitive science. People know that it's an interdisciplinary program. For example, there is a Cox Plan course where students are exposed to the research of all the faculty members in the department. So, for example, my advisor went and you know talked about something. Another person goes and talks about something else. So they seem very you know not they seem so disconnected from each other. But that is the idea. That is the idea is to give the students the breadth of knowledge that they can see in the first course. And then they realize what interests them. And they basically talk to the professors, for example, if I would like to specialize in that field, what kind of courses should I take? And then in the program, there are actually three, three tracks. And one track is, for example, neuroscience track. So some, for example, cognitive science students would like to specialize in neuroscience, so they took courses from the other tracks as well, but their main specialization in neuroscience. Some of them specialize on computation, for example. They take a lot of courses from computer science, engineering, as well as cognitive science. And there is also an HCI, human-computer interaction track. And in that track, people basically take courses uh, in terms of um, you know, how we design things, human-centered design, etc., etc. Uh, and then, you know, for example, many, many students I know that who graduated from the HCI track, for example, they actually got into big companies like Google, Facebook, Twitter, without getting masters, etc. So even at, the, at an undergrad level, if you have a breadth of knowledge and on top of that you have a specialization, uh, you can actually, you know, uh, have really like good body of knowledge and then of course you can build uh, on it with master's, PhD, etc. But uh, of course, we need to think about how we can do these things in Turkey uh, sure. because Turkey has a different um, you know, structure, educational uh, program, etc. But I don't think that these are impossible. Like, we can For definitely sure. work on these kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, we can do it. But I mean, let me, let me end with this for this question. I think. Students uh, in general uh, uh, should not be afraid of taking courses uh, from other disciplines. But, I mean, university is a great place for that, right? When, yeah. when you're in computer engineering, for example, let's say you're an engineering student, if you think that you have an interest in biology, or if you think that you have an interest in arts, if you have an interest in, I don't know, like economics, yeah, go and take courses. Yeah, go, yeah go, go and take courses. Sure. And in some universities, you can do minors, you can do uh, double majors, etc. Go and take those courses because none of us, uh, none of us, um, you know, uh, all of us have um, different skills, right? And our skills are not limited just to domain we study. And it will enrich the person actually immensely if you actually integrate other types of disciplines to your field. Yeah, for sure. So uh, just to maybe build up on what you said, the problem there is usually the prerequisites that the person is supposed to take, right? For example, you you are you want to take a neuroscience course, but you need to take five different classes that does not interest you at all. To just to get that course, there should be background, of course, but five courses 
is that really what it takes? Should that be the case? And yeah, do yeah. you have any solutions? For yeah, that? that's a great question too. So yeah, you are right. I think um, so. There can be several solutions for that. So for example, most of the cases, uh, the departments um, uh, decide on their curriculum. Um, based on uh, the needs of the students who are in that department. So, for example, if we are talking about psychology, the psychology curriculum is uh, decided on based on the needs we give to the students, right? But then if a student comes from computer science and would like to take psychology courses, then um, definitely there needs to be some, you know, like prerequisites if, you know, he or she wants to take an upper level course, for example. But um, I think the departments can decide on this. So, for example, the departments can say that I have some courses that are open only for the majors of our department, but there are, uh, for example, some courses that are open uh, maybe to, to outsiders. Uh, so, for example, in our department, there are definitely courses like that. For example, there is 101. Actually, everybody can take 101. Uh, but some students, for example, if they don't want to delve into much about psychology, they took, for example, 100. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, for example, there are, I know that there are a lot of students who would like to take, for example, the cognitive neuroscience course, for example, but there are actually two or three prerequisites for that. So maybe well, what could be done is that maybe uh, the cognitive, there will be a cognitive neuroscience course that is open only for um, outsiders. Yeah, exactly, outsiders, which may be a little, which may be covering some background as well. And this is this is, for example, when I was a student at Wittgen, for example, we were taking, um, for example, mathematics courses. I think at 250 or something like that. I remember it if I remember it correctly. So, for example, it was probability for a probability and statistics for engineers, for example, yeah. right? Uh, but probability and statistics for mathematics, mathematics is yeah. different than that. So, that kind of courses, I think, could be opened across the departments. But I think in order to do that, we need to know the needs. Right? How many students? So, for example, if I open in cognitive neuroscience, in uh, psychology department, a cognitive neuroscience course for outsiders, how many people would take yeah, it? You, I you have no know. idea before I have starting. No idea. Yeah. Exactly. This is why it's kind of tricky, right? So, you need to, maybe you need to do some surveys yes, before you yes, actually definitely. come to that kind of thing and see what kind of interest the students would have, and then later on you may start thinking about. These are some issues that can that, that are not solved yet, but I'm kind of hopeful that yeah, these kinds of things, yeah, these kinds of things can be solved in the long run. Okay. So you were in USA for your PhD in Italy for your postdoctoral work after that. How was the culture shock and studying abroad abroad for a considerable considerable amount of time? Yeah, ah, it's challenging. <laughs> it's challenging. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, yeah. I think uh, when I went to United States uh, for my PhD, um, I didn't really think much about the culture and the social life, etc. The only thing I thought was, you know, I wanted to go to the, uh, you know, um, you know, best program that I could go, um, you know, according to my, you know, needs, according to my interests. Uh, so that was 
the only thing I taught, honestly. And actually, right now, for example, my master's students would like to go to PhD abroad, and I see that they are actually considering many things, and I think this is great, <laughs> because I wish I did that too. <laughs> uh, so, uh, so in that sense, uh, I think there are definitely many things that you need to consider when you are going abroad. But my, in my case, I only thought, uh, you know, going to the best school I could go, you know, for my interest. When I went there, um, you know, I was quite lucky because uh, I went to California. And, uh, of course, I knew California from the movies, but I've never been there, etc. So when I went there, uh, what I saw was, um, th- that was a real culture shock. Because what I saw was, um, people were so laid back. You know, so for example, in weekends, you know, and in my high school, etc., people are always hardworking and they are kind of stressed and, you know, you don't have much fun. You know, <laughs> if you do things for fun, people would kind of look at you in a weird way, you know. And then when I went to California, people were so laid back. And yeah, I, I mean, everybody was like, you know, I, I will do my work and then I will do my fun kind of thing. So that was quite surprising to me. Uh, and then I found myself at some point, I think in the first few years, I found myself studying all the time and not having much fun. <laughs> and then because this was the way I was raised, this was the way I, you know, knew things, etc. Uh, but then uh, I realized that. Uh, for example, among the professors, let me start with that because I think that was the most striking thing for me. Uh, so among the professors we had in the department, um, uh, there were people who were basically going surfing with lunch break. <laughs> so basically, I, I basically saw one of the you know one of the professors I really like admired a lot. Uh, he was basically coming with a surfboard, and I was like seeing him with a surf uh, suit, and he was like, you know, I just surfed during lunch break, and now I will uh, start working. You know, he was such a successful man, he was such a, but, but he was so cool that he could do all these uh, fun activities as well. So that kind of thing taught me a lot, actually, because... I realized that, okay, maybe I also wanted to have fun, you know, at certain times. Everybody would like to have fun, of course. But I was kind of inhibiting myself because I was telling myself, you have limited time here, you have to work hard, you know, you already need a lot of, you know, efforts to come here, etc. But I realized that I was actually putting a lot of pressure on myself and forget about, uh, you know. And then what would happen is that, as many grad students may imagine, it, it, it, will, um, it, it would end with burnout, right? Mm-hmm. You will burn out, and then, you know, at, at a certain time, you will not be able to work at all because you work so hard and you don't have any rest. So that was the first thing, uh, you know, that, uh, that, that is the first thing that comes to my mind, that culture shock, you know, people can actually work hard, but also people can have fun. Yeah. That was one of the things that I learned there. You can be laid back, but you can still be quite efficient. And so I think in the later years, I was basically trying to uh, balance that. Basically, I was trying to do, you know, like work really hard. But on the other hand, I was trying to also have a social life. In the first few years, it was also difficult. Another uh, maybe difficulty is that when um, you're in a different country, um, uh, if you haven't been there before, uh, even if 
um, you know the language very well, uh, let's say you speak very well, your English level is great according to your TOEFL scores, etc. There is definitely the conversational English that you need to pick up. So there are all these, um, you know, like jokes, all these, you know, acronyms, all these abbreviations, etc. that you don't know. And people are talking and you... Um, you know, you are in the conversation, but they say something and you never, you don't understand because they use an acronym. I mean, we do that in Turkish too, right? We, we, are, we, are, we are never aware that we have that thing because if you live only with people who speak your own language, you never realize that. Uh, so when I go there, I realize that there were so many things that I didn't know. And there were times when I was like, uh, you know, oh my God, you know, I need to, what, what should I do, you know, to improve my English? I didn't think that this would be that way, but now I have to. So I started watching TV shows, you know, to, just to you know, get the language, etc. But, uh, you know, over time, you know, you actually pick up everything. So it is just what we call in psychology, cognitive science, statistical regularity, right? <laughs> you basically, you basically, once you are exposed to the, uh, you know, language, once you are exposed to the environment, and once you have friends, you know, you speak, you uh, do that very well, you actually, um, you know, uh, pick up that very well. But it takes time. It doesn't happen, you know, like at least the first year, you have to struggle a little bit. <laughs> so, uh, you, you returned to Turkey after that, I believe. Uh, how did you decide to return and what's the story there? Okay, so after my PhD, as you uh, said, I went to Italy to do my postdoc. Yes. Um, Italy was also uh, another... Uh, uh, adventure for me because in Italy, you know, there's, um, for example, in the United States, I didn't have the problem of English, you know, in terms of understanding, etc. Yeah. In Italy, I had the problem, I had the language problem because um, Italians do not speak uh, English that frequently, you know, you I can speak English only within my academic circle, but I cannot speak it, for example, when I go to groceries or when I go somewhere to else get coffee, okay. to get a coffee, etc. So I had to kind of struggle. Anyway, so what I, uh, but those kinds of things taught me several things. So when I was in the States, my, uh, I didn't know what I wanted to do in terms of my long-term plans. Okay. So I had my options open. So I had the idea that I may go back to Turkey mm-hmm. uh, in a good uh, research university. I had that idea all the time in my mind when I uh, left Bilkent. Uh, I uh, had that idea. Maybe I will come back to Bitcamp at some point in my life. <laughs> so, but uh, when I was there, of course, you see the other possibilities as well. Uh, and then I basically was thinking, okay, let me, you know, think about all these possibilities. So at some point, I thought about doing a postdoc work in the United States. Okay. But then I realized that if I do a postdoc work in the United States. I may never get to know how science is done, how scientific world is in Europe. Huh. I know Turkey, I know the United States, but I didn't know anything about Europe much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I decided, okay, let me do my postdoctoral work in Europe so that I can see, you know, how European science works as well. And one of the recommendations that I had from my professors was that 
um, wherever you go, you need to have a network of scientists because we know that science is not a just sole discipline, I mean, sole activity. You actually work with a number of people and it's better if you have collaborators around the world. So I already know some people in the United States, so I actually wanted to um, widen my network in Europe. So this is why I wanted to do my postdoctoral work in Europe. I came to Italy. And it was kind of good because I really made a lot of networking uh, in uh, Europe. And one of the, uh, when I was in Italy, what I realized is that at some uh, one day, let me say that, I, I, it was towards the, my second year of uh, postdoc, and I felt like I have to make a decision now, you know, where I would like to land them, right? And where I would like to uh, establish my lab and do my science, train my own students, etc. So I remember that I um, you know, opened a page where I had the uh, whole like world map and then I basically found a very nice website where it was talking about uh, the, um, the, the educational system, higher educational system of uh, the countries that I'd like to I want to go and you know live in. And then those countries included you know United States, United Kingdom, uh, Netherlands, I think Germany, uh, and Turkey. Turkey, I already know. And the reason I chose these countries were the fact that uh, in Italy I had so much difficult time for with the language. So I basically didn't want the language to be a barrier for me. And I didn't have the patience to work another language. You know? <laughs> uh, so this is why I basically wanted to go to a country where I can uh, use my English uh, you know, fluently and use my English properly. Uh, and, you know, everything is, I mean, bureaucratically also easy. For example, Italy is not a bureaucratically easy country. So this is why I basically, and then when I look for these, when I talk to people, I realize that Netherlands, Germany, UK uh, are the countries in um, Europe uh, where you, I can go. So I consider this, uh, and I consider United States again. And then Turkey. But in the end, uh, I ended up uh, deciding on Turkey. I mean, I basically applied for jobs uh, first to Turkey. And the reason was actually for family reasons, for personal reasons. Uh, I was away uh, from Turkey for 10 years. Uh, so and I think I, I missed Turkey. Uh, I missed uh, my family. Uh, I missed my friends. I miss, uh, And the other thing is, I think, um, the, the feeling of paying back. So I had um, uh, I had so many good things in Turkey. Like uh, I had a very good education in Bilkent. Uh, I had many uh, you know good things, good skills that I developed at uh, Netu. Uh, and uh, I realized that um, especially cognitive neuroscience, the field I am studying and the path I have taken is not a very familiar path in Turkey. Yes. So and I kind of had the feeling that there might be students who would like to take such a path. So, for example, there might be engineering students or people from mathematical backgrounds who would like to do, for example, more biology kind of things. Maybe I can be a role model. Maybe I can, uh, you know, help them, you know, to do that. And uh, in my own science, I actually meet those kinds of people as well. So when I do, for example, my own, the, the lab that we do in our lab is mostly uh, we need engineering skills, but we need to use these skills in for uh, for answering biological questions or psychological questions. So this is why I had that feeling, and 
the other thing was, of course, having good students. You know, so when I think about Netherlands, UK, etc., etc. So for all of these kinds of countries, you also need to make sure that you have good students. I mean, in Turkey, I knew that if I come to, for example, weekends, I knew that I I will have the best students. So this is why you know the the, the way I will uh, work uh, will be really you know joyful because these are really like good students. Uh, yeah, mostly family reasons as well as all the uh, you know uh, all the academic things. What I need. Uh, one last piece of thing is that as I said in Turkey, things are new in terms of cognitive neuroscience. But there was this brain research center that was recently established at Bilkent. And I realized that uh, they have few faculty and they would like to grow. So I just wanted to be part of that uh, growing, actually. So the thing you are mentioning about role modeling is the goal of the podcast, actually, to show the drug stars that you really are. So... Um, let me go into another question. How was the experience of building a career in psychology and in academia in general? What was the difficulties you had because of academia and specifically in psychology? What would you, how would you change academia if you had the chance in psychology? Mm-hmm. Uh, when you say academia, do you mean like all the PhD years as well, or after I become a faculty member? Um, after you started public, like before you started. Publishing papers. Ah, really. okay. How did you? Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, that's a multi-dimensional question. I would say I, it has a lot of dimensions. I would say, but I think the most important thing is that um, reading, following the literature, is the key thing. Whatever level you are, whether you are an undergrad, whether you are a master's, whether you are a PhD, or whether you are a postdoc, or whether you are at the faculty level. I think the most important thing that will give you your freedom, that will give you your strength, uh, that will give you the power you know, of being a scientist mm-hmm. is actually to know what people have been working on, what are the best things in the world, uh, what are the best uh, studies in this world you know, uh, that are done around that topic. That being said, um, Having a breadth of knowledge is great, but unless you specialize on something, um, people will not um, uh, respect you that much. For example, if you are someone who has a paper on this and on that, on that, on that, so if you have a very, very, you know, like wide range of things that you work on, I mean, I work on very wide range of things, but I have a comprehensive story that I can bring together. So, so for example, if you study, if you just, if you were just opportunistic, and if you just work on one thing and then another thing, then another thing, Whatever right? So, yeah, yeah, just to, for, for the sake of publishing, etc., that doesn't make much sense. So, what I would say is that first, read, read, read, read, read. Uh, and uh, that will complement that is go to seminars, go to seminars, go to seminars, right? So, one of the advantages I had, I just would like to have a parenthesis here, uh, during my PhD, I think that really contributed to my career. And still, I am benefiting from that is that when I was a PhD student, I think I was going at least two or three talks in a week 
and, you know, so there was a psycho there was psychology department seminar series. There was neuroscience department seminar series. There was cognitive science department seminar series. And there was an institute for neural computation, and I was going there. And then there were some CS or EE talks that I... So I was basically following all the email lists of these. And whenever I find something really interesting, I was going there. And I always advise this to my students as well. Because what happens is that even if, the let's say, the topic is not something you are interested in. For example, I'm interested in action perception, visual mm -hmm. perception. So sometimes, for example, there is a person who studies auditory perception, okay? I still go to that talk. If I read the abstract and if it sounds interesting, I still go to that. Maybe from an auditory point of view, I will not do anything. But the methodology they use, maybe the kind of questions, the way they ask questions, or, the, or sometimes just the sake, for the sake of uh, the fact that this person is the best in the field and I don't know anything about auditory neuroscience, and I would like to go and listen from first hand. <laughs> yeah. You know, that is, I think that that is the uh, important thing. Uh, read, read, read, go to the seminars, interact with scientists. So, for example, sometimes in weekend as well, whenever we have a guest speaker, we invite our grad students and even some undergrads to lunch. Uh, to lunches, right? Yeah. To lunch, yeah. uh, and then, for example, uh, make that opportunity. Take that opportunity, right? Mm -hmm. Go to the lunch with the speaker, interact with them, tell about yourself. Yeah, so be kind of, you know, uh, proactive, mm -hmm. right? So I was kind of uh, when I was um, uh, an undergrad, I was a quite introvert uh, person, sure. uh, still in masters, even in PhD. But over time, I realized that. Uh, you kind of you kind of need to push your comfort zones uh, to actually start these interacting because science is no longer done in you know like dark laboratories <laughs> in ground uh, uh, floors etc. Right? We, we have to interact. We have to learn, and there is internet etc. So this is why we have to be really proactive. But while you are being proactive, make sure that you know you read you. Uh, uh, interact, uh, you follow. I mean, there is definitely, for example, social media, Twitter, uh, where, for example, I use Twitter only for academic purposes. So, uh, there is, the network I have on Twitter is just scientists, for example. And we basically follow each other because whenever I publish something or whenever my colleague publishes something, we basically know uh, through, you know, Twitter, for example. You can definitely make use of these kinds of things. Um, maybe, uh, one other thing that is important in academic um, world, especially for people who would like to build their career, is that uh, presentation. Presenting, presenting, presenting. Presenting your work is very important. If you are working on a project, right, uh, when you are proactive, also, you know, try to be, uh, try to find base, try to find opportunities where you can present your work and get feedback, nice. okay? Yeah. So getting feedback is good. So this is why, for example, in the lab, uh, whenever uh, my students have uh, some good, uh, uh, good uh, amount of data where we can make sense of, uh, I basically encourage them to present in conferences. Mm. It doesn't have to be complete yet, but as long as we have an idea about uh, what uh, we are looking for, or you know, in terms of what we are studying, mm. you know, presenting them, sharing with the scientists, getting feedback is really 
uh, very uh, you know beneficial because you basically can build on that. And you also feel like you're part of a community. You know, you're part of a scientific community and you are not alone in your desk working on this, uh, you know, big problem. And you basically share the feelings that everybody, you know, all scientists are more or less working in a similar way, right? So having that sense is also very, uh, I think, important. And also one final thing is that uh, maybe it is also this lunchtime thing, but network with scientists, networking, and to conferences, to seminars, um, and, you know, for example, even if you, uh, you know, uh, so sometimes people think that networking, you should go to, uh, you should go abroad. Uh, definitely going abroad is great, uh, because uh, your network is wider, Uh, but you can also network in Turkey, uh, for example, if you find uh, you know people who share similar interests, you can network with people. If you have peers, for example, one advantage I had uh, with my PhD was that I had a, a lab mate in the lab um, that we kind of had uh, our own journal club. Um, so we were basically uh, finding papers that we found interesting. And then we were kind of once a week we like uh, met for a coffee. There was a coffee shop. We were going there, uh, you know, open air. So we were having our coffee and we were like discussing papers. Yeah, and then actually one of those papers turned into be a journal publication. Wow. Yeah. So you know there are definitely journals where they are actually, for example, Journal of Neuroscience. It's accepting papers from grad students and postdocs. Um, you know, reviews or critics of papers, mm -hmm. for example. While we were reading one of these papers, we kind of realized that, oh, you know, how about we write a review on that, and he wrote, and it, it was accepted. So, you know, that is also very nice, um, you know, uh, thing to feel, because you also do something without uh, involving your advisor, right? As a PhD student, you always feel like, you know, uh, you're part of your PhD advisor's work, which is good, of course, being part of a big thing, but also you can realize that you can actually realize your potential uh, independently as well. So these, like, being proactive, you know, these kinds of things are very important, I think, for building a career, not only in psychology, but in, I think, any field. Thank you for the very detailed and very awesome answer. So, um, what would you suggest students do more? You you spoke to that a little bit just now, but uh, while learning these concepts, while reading, what do you suggest them to do to learn the interesting concepts in psychology? Hmm. I mean, the first thing is that I would definitely... Um, uh, now there is internet, right? Yeah. And if you go to YouTube, Uh, my time, you know, during my time, there was nothing like this. YouTube was just new. Mm -hmm. uh, right now, um, there are so many summer schools, for example. For example, MIT has a summer school on brain, minds, machines. <laughs> And then, for example, there is UCLA summer course on neuroimaging. Uh, there is, for example, Cold Spring Harbor uh, school, uh, summer school on computational vision, for example, for people who are who would like to study visual neuroscience. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, there is a European uh, neuroscience summer school. Uh, so what I would suggest is that I would either attend these summer schools, for example, and network with people. Mm -hmm. But on top of that, if, let's say, you are new in a field, let's say that you enter a lab and you would like to study, I don't know, visual perception, 
Yeah. And you are new to the field and you would like to understand the concepts. What I would do is that I would first find the most recent maybe review papers yeah. that are published in the top journals in your field. Okay. For example, for cognitive science or for neuroscience, for example, stress in neurosciences, stress in cognitive sciences, annual uh, reviews of psychology, annual reviews of neuroscience. Um, you know, uh, these are some, you know, nature reviews neuroscience. Um, these are some, you know, journals where people, people who are best in their field publish reviews of the literature that they are expert on, okay? So I would definitely start with those papers, with those review papers. And then for these summer schools I was mentioning, these people may be lecturing in these summer schools. And some of these, for example, during the pandemic, some of these summer schools were uh, done online and their recordings are available online. Nice. Or, for example, um, there are YouTube videos, for example, I don't know, some professor who is an expert on auditory perception uh, gives a lecture at somewhere and then it is recorded and put on it. So if you are an auditory perception person, go and listen that lecture. I think try to find out, uh, rather than you know, bits and pieces here and there, try to find out what is the mainstream idea. Right, what's the mainstream? What is the most accepted things right now? What is the, uh, um, let's say, what's the uh, most recent knowledge about this field? This is why I would go to these uh, review papers, the top review papers in the field, the most recent ones, and then find those people and go to their websites, go to their lab websites, try to find out their papers, etc. And this way you will basically figure out, you know, what are, you know, the things. And then, you know, every knowledge will take you to another knowledge. And then um, definitely have an advisor, right, uh, a mentor, and uh, share these things with your mentor, with your advisor, and that person will give you a guide, I'm sure. And then it will help you to find your own way. Yeah. So thank you for the answer again. So is there any... You spoke to this a little bit earlier when you said cognitive science can be an undergrad major even. So is there anything that bothers you about the curriculum of psychology? How would you change it if you had the chance? You would, would you just open another thing called cognitive science? Or would you change psychology that to include more of cognitive science? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, our department, if we are talking about psychology department, Mm-hmm. Uh, in Bilkent. Um, so our department reflects the uh, main um, main divisions, subdivisions of psychology. So for example, in summer school, you know, for uh, high school students or incoming students, we give these, uh, you know, mistakes uh, seminar lessons, yes. you know. And in those summer school, uh, summer uh, seminars, we basically always tell our students, uh, and that this is true, uh, we, our department has all the kind of main subfields of psychology. For example, there is social psychology, there is clinical psychology, there is uh, developmental psychology, there is cognitive psychology, right? There is industrial organizational psychology. So these are traditional subdisciplines of psychology, okay? So if you think about cognitive science, Cognitive science kind of overlaps mostly with cognitive psychology and neuroscience among these disciplines. So in that sense, our psychology department has other 
um, subdivisions of psychology, like developmental psychology, industrial, yes. organizational, social, etc. So this is why I wouldn't change that. I think it is uh, it is uh, it is enriching our department much more. And uh, there are definitely students who would like to, for example, study developmental psychology. People who would like to study, uh, I don't know, social psychology. So I think we should be open to that. Uh, what I would do if I uh, was up to me is that I would add more maybe computational courses. Mm. So, for example, in our um, uh, in our curriculum right now, uh, there is a programming course uh, in Python. I think CS one two three or one two five or something like that. Uh, but for example, I would put a more advanced level, for example, computational modeling course. Mm. I mean, it can be um, I don't know, it can be elective. It can be later on, uh, you know, maybe mandatory as well, but I would definitely have, because now we are in the era of data science. Yes. Everybody is, you know, everybody knows what data science is, and everybody, whatever field you are in, you would like to develop some skills in data science. What I'd like to do is at least some, uh, you know, modeling, some more, um, you know, it's not just word Excel, etc. It's more like you know you have data, and we know that, for example, there is now a big field called computational social sciences. Oh. So computational social science is a field where you have a bunch of psychological data, social science data, and it can be, for example, about um, the data, for example, from the elections. You know, sure. so it's it's social science data, and then you would like to mine this data. So, for example, I think the psychology department. Uh, should definitely have a data science course, yeah. I think, at this point. Yeah. So I would have these kinds of things uh, if it was up to me, and maybe in the future we will do that. Yeah, that would be very nice, I believe. So I saw that you give six courses, which means you are really very active. How do you balance being a professor and being a researcher and other responsibilities in family and etc.? Do you have any tactics for the for that? Yeah. So yeah, I think uh, being uh, so when you are an academic, uh, you always have actually three things. Other yeah. than your family life, you have research, teaching, and service. Active service. Service is more like administrative duties that you need uh, to do. Yeah. For example, yeah. during summers, I give this uh, seminar series to high school students. This is a service that I do for the, for example, department. Mm -hmm. Or, for example, uh, at some point, I was an Erasmus coordinator. For example, yeah. this is not research. This is not teaching. This is service. Okay. Yeah. So there is definitely the service part. <laughs> uh, there is uh, the research part and there is the teaching part. So I basically see it, it's challenging at those times because I identify myself more like a researcher rather than a teacher. But that being said, when you're a researcher, I always tell this to my students as well, if you can teach something well, right, it means that you understand it very well, right? So this is why... Uh, teaching is really a great way uh, of seeing whether I understand something perfectly or not. <laughs> so, and the other thing is that whenever I'm teaching, for example, when I'm preparing for my courses, uh, I realize that uh, I am actually coming up with new ideas for my research. Nice. So because what's happening is that, so for example, you, you teach the course, there are definitely some textbooks, but sometimes the textbooks are kind of outdated. 
Right? For example, maybe the textbook is from two years ago. Maybe there is a new paper that comes out, and from this paper, you would like to share the results with your students. For example, I may add it to my uh, course. So in that sense, my teaching and research they are actually are related to each other. I am basically giving feedback, and that's uh, once I have my course, right? Uh, I teach that course. There are students, for example, who are taking these courses from me. They may come to me and say, uh, you know, professor, I really like these courses, and I know that sometimes I also talk about what I do, what I what kind of research I do. Uh, for example, in perception course. And they say, I would like to study this. I would like to learn more about this. And they basically come to my lab. So also, courses are times when I met, uh, when I meet my potential lab members, my collaborators, exactly, etc. So this is why uh, teaching and research, although sometimes we see them two separate from each other, uh, in my um, you know agenda, they are actually quite connected to each other. But uh, there are definitely parts that I don't, uh, let's say, like much. Uh, for example, uh, when we grade. <laughs> so it takes so much time. <laughs> but of course, you should give the uh, you know, right to the students. You know, they have to be assessed. But it takes so much time. And then sometimes I basically have the feeling that uh, when I cannot be uh, fast in grading, uh, my students are waiting for me and that is stressing me. Because sometimes our students think that the only thing we do is teaching. Mm -hmm. And they sometimes, uh, for example, one of my summer interns told me that he took a course from me and he said, and then he did an internship in my lab and he said that, uh, Professor, I didn't know that you were so busy outside of your teaching. I thought that you were only teaching for us. And I'm like, oh, yeah, so this is my life outside of the class, etc. So he, he basically uh, saw how busy I was, uh, you know, in the brain center uh, after my um, class hours. And he basically, I, I would never tell you uh, to be really fast in grading because I can't see how, uh, you know, that, that is the thing uh, that is challenging for me. Uh, other than that, I love teaching. I love interacting with students. Uh, I love uh, seeing how uh, they are amazed by the human mind, human brain, especially for my topic, uh, etc. And then I love how, uh, you know, they can come to my lab or go to other labs in our department you know, think that, you know, things are uh, quite, they, they would like to learn more about these kinds of things. I think these are quite, uh, you know, motivating me. Because otherwise, if I just do research, I think in that case, uh, at some point it may be very boring because you don't interact with the, uh, you know, next generation. Mm -hmm. So that is also, you know, a rewarding thing. I think. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so you, you talked about grading and how difficult it is, <laughs> how, how boring and maybe too computational. So um, think of an AI that could do, do the grading for you. Would you use that or would you be more conservative? Yeah, I would be a little bit more conservative because I think AI is not at, at, an, at, at that, that stage. level yet. Yeah, so the yeah. only thing I would, I mean, if you want to rely on AI and, you know, you would design your questions based on that. Mm -hmm. So, for example, I would say, um, I would 
In usually in psychology, our, our um, uh, questions are open-ended questions, right? Yeah, yeah. So, for example, I ask a question and it is open-ended. But I can tell students, for example, uh, explain this in maybe four or five sentences. So the students explain, but everybody has a different way of explaining it. So some students explain it in four or five sentences, but some students take a page to explain that. So that, that becomes difficult. So this is why... Uh, if you don't constrain the answer space, it is so hard to use an AI. Yes. But if you constrain it, if, for example, you say that, well, uh, I am looking for these keywords, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, I'm expecting uh, four or five sentences, yeah. and I'm expecting this kind of a sentence, or I'm expecting this kind of a knowledge. No. If you say that, probably check GPT and things like that would yes. be able to capture that. Yes. But I, I think I will still be a little bit conservative there. Yeah. I, I will still uh, look myself. <laughs> uh, you, you have a right to do so. I, I would I would be the same probably. So, um, you're, you said you love teaching and interacting with students. So, um, I believe there aren't many, many of the, some of the professors at least don't don't quite like that and are not maybe good at teaching as well as they uh, research maybe. Uh, so what advice would you give to them while interacting with students, being like teaching? For that, yeah. I mean, it's not my business actually to tell anybody yeah, yeah. to give any advice <laughs> yeah, yeah, because sure. I, I'm not sure ever I am a good teacher. But uh, so what I do is that um, I can understand how um, one can be a good researcher but not a good teacher. I can understand that uh, because uh, some people are more, you know, love oriented. Uh, so they would like to just ask questions, answer um, you know those questions, try to design experiments or you know model things, etc. And they are not very let's say good at explaining things. Some people even see that as a waste uh, of time, you know, like going and teaching. I think I'm more thinking in the in a broader sense because as I said. Uh, The, the students I meet in my classes uh, are the ones who actually get to know me yeah. and through that meeting they will decide whether they would like to work with me in my lab, etc. So in that sense, teaching serves for my research. Yes, so but that is that part. So in that sense, uh, if you are taking undergrad or... If, for example, you are you are going to take grad students, and these undergrads may be the future grad students, so you can look at look at from a very pragmatic perspective, and you can see that you know I can take students you know from there. So that is one thing. Um, so you try to let at least two people approach you. Yeah, yeah, definitely, yeah. definitely. I mean. It, it, so natural. I never tell students that, you know, you should come and work in my lab. Whenever, you know, I'm teaching, uh, you know, at some point, uh, some students, not everyone, but some students come and ask me, you know, I'm interested in, um, you know, doing research and I'm especially interested in this topic. Can I, you know, do an internship in your lab or can I work in your lab as an undergraduate research assistant? So that is, you know, that is how it happens. And usually, If there is an open position in our lab, I accept them. 
but you know, other than that, uh, I think um, um, for for those people who might not like teaching, uh, they may not find uh, something beneficial for them. Maybe this is the thing. Uh, maybe, for example, if you are not taking students, then what is the what is the goal of teaching, right? If you think about it. But then the question is, well, if you are a scientist who is actually generating these new kinds of knowledge, then it needs to be provided to the next generation. And university is the place to do that. Where would I do that otherwise, right? So, yeah, I think that, I mean, sometimes I think... Uh, the, the problem is that sometimes research can be very heavy, our, our uh, work in research can be very heavy, so we, you know, we have, for example, grants, we have a lot of deadlines, etc. Sometimes, you know, going and teaching in that class may actually, uh, you know, uh, may actually delay, um, you know, certain things in your research, maybe this is when uh, researchers complain about teaching. But uh, I mean, I think thinking in a more, uh, I think in a in broader context would give you more, uh, I think, joy. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, as far as I've seen, you are work working on a lot of topics, including gender attribution, personality prediction, visual perception, and many others. These seem to be f fascinating topics, each of them really. Combined with current technologies like robots, AI, virtual reality, like how difficult is it to concentrate on seem many seemingly non-related topics in psychology, mm -hmm. and how do you find the trade-off between being good at a bunch of fields and being really, really good at one single field? Mm -hmm. So all these things seem to be disconnected from each other, but they have a connection in my mind. So this is, I think, probably why, uh, uh, so when I, for example, talk to someone about my research, uh, I actually can put all these papers in a category, you know, in the way. Mm -hmm. So the way I define my research is as follows, maybe if I say that it may make sense. So I'm interested in uh, how we perceive and understand the world around us. And I'm specifically focusing on the visual domain, so I'm interested in more about visual perception, how we perceive our world. And to be more specific, I'm interested in how we perceive the uh, agents in our environment. When I say agents, people, individuals who are acting, the movies. Because I believe that we are living, I mean, not I believe, you know that. Uh, we are living in a dynamic world. Everything is moving, except the uh, you know certain you know objects, static objects. Everything people are moving, things are moving. You know everything. And I'm interested in especially motion perception. How we perceive motion? How our visual system? How our brain processes this motion? And specifically because we are humans, and as humans, maybe one of the most interesting thing for us is other people, other living things, other agents. So I'm interested in how we perceive other people's actions, how we perceive other animals' actions, etc. And when I ask this, we usually characterize this as biological motion, you know, motion of living things. When I try to understand that, um, you know, I basically use, you know, neuroimaging techniques, behavioral techniques, and my question is, how do you understand biological motion? How do you understand uh, other people's actions. How do you understand that? And when you ask that, it has a lot of dimensions. So, for example, you can ask, how do we understand, um, I don't know, how do we understand visual speaking? How do we perceive that, like low-level factors? 
or how do we uh, how do I understand the intentions behind these actions, etc. So you can uh, start from very low level things to higher level things. So this is one thing. Then when you are asking biological motion, you see that we are living in an era where the agents that we have in, in our environment are just no longer humans, right? Mm -hmm. We also have uh, humanoid robots, we have social robots, we have all these agents that we are introduced by AI right now. And this means that, and many of them can actually do, if you look at the most sophisticated ones, they can actually do, perform the actions that humans do, yes. you know? They have gender, they have, I don't know, they have, um, you know, they do certain uh, movements, they do certain tasks, etc. So, and if you look at that, uh, you know, that is an area that needs attention as well, because I'm interested in how um, these agents that are not in our evolutionary history from a biological point of view, right? So my brain has not adapted to these agents yet, right? These are just very new in our evolutionary history. So from a cognitive science point of view, it's, I feel like it's my duty to understand how I understand biological agents, but how I understand non-biological agents and how that is different from each other. Did I evolve or did I evolve a system where, you know, I will process these non-biological agents? And then you, this is how my robotics work starts, basically. This is why I study both biological agents, humans, as well as uh, non-biological agents, robots. And then comes to robots, so many questions. So the, the publications that you mentioned, some of them, for example, with one of my students, he studied gender. Yeah. My student was interested in gender. Normally, gender is something that you attribute to biological things. Mm -hmm. We never think about, because gender is related to sex. And sex is a biological attribute, whereas gender is a more social construct. Sure. And uh, but when gender is a social construct, uh, obviously we cannot attribute a sex a, a, a sex category to a, a robot. But we can attribute a gender, and we do actually. But how do we do that? For example, you know, do we use our gender stereotypes? and attribute them to uh, robots, so, etc. What did you find there? What was <laughs> so that was very interesting. So this is this is a work that we studied, uh, that we worked on with uh, one of my master's students, uh, Gaia Ashkin. Uh, Gaia actually uh, worked with me on this project uh, when, he, when she was an undergrad. Nice. So, and she's still a grad student right now working on another topic. Mm -hmm. uh, what we found is the following. So we had a robot uh, we found a bunch of robot uh, pictures and we asked people to rate these robots in terms of their uh, gender. Okay. So we basically give a scale from minus 3 to plus 3 and 0 is the point where they say neutral, neither uh, male nor female. And then if it is, for example, minus 3 male and it is plus 3 uh, female. And then we basically try to find out first, uh, can we find a gender neutral robot? where people would not attribute any gender. And we find a robot like that. We, we, we, we put them into pockets. And then, we ask, in another study, we asked people, um, tell us, it was kind of a survey kind of study, we asked them, tell us what kind of actions, because we study action, uh, what kind of actions would you think uh, women do in their daily life? And then what kind of actions do you think men would do in their daily life? Mm -hmm. And then we basically got a bunch of answers, so many answers. 
For example, the, and we choose the top five, basically. The actions that were mostly um, you know, reported for women and men. For, for example, for women, it was more like uh, cooking and you know, taking care of babies, <laughs> as you may imagine, all these stereotypical uh, actions. And then for men, we found, uh, for example, uh, playing video games and <laughs> driving and etc. So we basically found five actions uh, for uh, female or um, uh, feminine actions mm-hmm. and masculine actions. Then, remember our robot, which was gender neutral? Mm-hmm. So we basically had that robot and we used 3D animation techniques. We had this robot, and uh, for example, that robot did cooking, okay. or that robot did, uh, for example, it played games, mm-hmm. video games, etc. Then we showed this gender neutral robot. In terms of its looking, yeah. it is gender neutral. It doesn't have any gender. People didn't attribute. But then we basically show people while the same robot is doing these actions. What we found is surprising because. When people see this gender-neutral robot, when it is doing feminine actions, people think that it is feminine, it's the female. But when it does uh, masculine actions, people think that it's the male. So this basically, the take-home message is that when you, the way we attribute gender to agents is not just dependent on their physical features. We also look at how they, what kind of actions they perform is also important. Yeah, very nice and very creative setup. So, um, how was the experience of finding the right setup, and what advice can you give to any of the experimental psychologists trying to set up experiments? Yours seem to be really creative, so that's yeah. why I'm asking. Yeah, this is always uh, what we do uh, with our undergrads and grads. We always uh, try to think about uh, things that haven't been in the literature, obviously. Mm-hmm. But um, if you for example, if anyone who does a literature review would somehow find some gaps in the literature. Yeah. But it doesn't mean that you need to go and do that study. I think the key thing, because there are so many things we could do, but the question is, you will any work that would, uh, that would go into publication will take at least two or three years. So this is why when you're starting a project, you need to think ahead and you need to say, is, it, is this question worth spending two or three years? Right? You need to ask this question because, as I said, there are so many interesting things, but you need to pick the ones that are right for you. And when when we are choosing that, we usually think about their significance. So, for example, there are, let's say, three things that are not done in the literature, and I need to pick one of them, and I will spend two or three years on them. When I'm choosing that, the thing I think about is, of course, the interest of the student, the interest of me, but also its significance. Significance meaning that what kind of impact it will have in the field. So, for example, for, let's say, this gender question, I would say, if action is such an important thing, then it doesn't make much sense just to focus on the visual features of the uh, robot, for example. So this is or for biological questions as well. So we, we are interested in um, you know finding uh, gaps in the literature and trying to ask questions uh, whose answers will have a big impact in the field. And this is why we need to read the field very well. You know, this is a topic that I mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, you need to know the literature very well so that you can say if I do this study or if I you know find these kinds of things, this will be a big 
impact in the field, kind of thing. You will be able to do that. And for that, of course, you need uh, experience. And for students, you know, who are, you know, who would like to do more impactful things, I think they should rely on their, they should talk to your, talk to their advisors, you know, because advisors are more experienced in the field, so they will know which kind of work would be more impactful, etc. So, yeah. Uh, you have also studied auditory and visual perceptions, if I don't know incorrectly. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any growing intuition to what the mind might be, whether or not it's physical? Or um, how where the colors are, where the percep- where the perception is really. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So we have a project in which we study audiovisual perception, predictive processing, and um, that was part of a big project uh, on um, you know how the uh, how the uh, how our brains work actually. So it's part of it. It's kind of part of a big thing. So my lab, for example, studies predictive processing. Predictive yeah. processing um, is um, a general theory right now, maybe one of the biggest theories in the neuroscience history, uh, which kind of tries to uh, understand the whole brain. So it's not a theory at a at a just for visual perception or just for auditory perception or just for color perception. Rather, it's a more generic theory. Uh, that is initially uh, proposed by Carl Friston. Uh, it's basically talking about um, uh, talking about um, um, uh, it's, it's talking about the mechanism that the brain might work. And the idea is as follows: brain is a generative system, mm-hmm. and uh, it's kind of a predictive predictive prediction machine. What we do is that, um, uh, for example, take visual perception. While we are visually perceiving something, the world is not a static thing, right? So, and our eyes is our eyes are not a static uh, camera. So we are not just capturing the scene in our environment. What what what we do is that there is the visual input, you know, like from physical walls. We know that the light is reflected from the objects. They fall onto our retina, and from our retina, they go to the primary visual cortex, and from there, it goes to the higher level regions. And people usually, in all like all, in older times, people think that it's a bottom-up way of you know working. It's kind of a feed-forward system in more computational terms. Um, you know, it basically starts with the stimulus and it goes to the brain, and that is it. Yeah. But later research, more recent research in the last maybe two decades. People uh, now have the consensus that uh, our um, brain is not just a feed-forward system. Actually, it has feedback connections where uh, uh, there are some predictions that we generate based on our prior knowledge. So whenever I'm perceiving something, I am actually not getting only the sensory input from the environment, but I am also bringing together my prior knowledge about objects, about the world, and I'm actually com- and comparing the sensory input to my predictions, and I'm kind of, you know, uh, after this comparison, I'm updating my uh, prior knowledge. So this is what is called the predictive coding, and or sometimes pr- predictive computation framework. And we study in that uh, study audiovisual thing, we study how uh, audio and visual information can predict each other. So, for example, we show a picture, and then based, and we show a picture of an agent, and then we ask people how would that agent sound.
Mm. So it's kind of a prediction based on what you experience. Yes. So for example, if you see a human, you would predict based on your experience that this human would sound human. Yeah. Whereas when you see a robot, mm-hmm. it would sound probably mechanical based on your experience with robots. So it's kind of a, a big project. Big project in the lab. We also study uh, this not only with robots but also for humans as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's a kind of generic, as I said, theory um, uh, of brain function. Uh, what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> the question is: Do you have any growing the intuition of oh, what mind is? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. this, so I kind of think that. Um, so this is how I started. So mm-hmm. this predictive coding, predictive computation thing. Uh, seems very appealing to many of us uh, because um, it can actually explain many things, for example. Uh, so uh, one of the, for example, things um, about predictive coding is that uh, when you see a stimulus that is ambiguous, for example, uh, I always give this example uh, for us, uh, for our world. Um, let's say that we are, you know, we are interested in understanding how uh, action perception works, how, uh, how we understand other humans, Let's imagine that you are in a rainy day, it's a foggy day, right? And then um, somebody is coming, uh, you know, you're outside, somebody is coming, uh, mm-hmm. and uh, you cannot uh, distinguish who that person is, okay? But if you have the prior knowledge that you will meet a friend of yours, and you, you, you know that what kind of jacket your friend will uh, wear, and mm-hmm. uh, maybe even, even if you cannot distinguish perfectly who that person is, maybe just from the jacket or from some other prior knowledge that you have, you may actually resolve that ambiguity, right? So in that sense, predictive computation is a nice framework uh, which allows us to study many things, at different levels of processing. Mm-hmm. So this is definitely one uh, thing, and I'm kind of interested, but uh, on top of that, there are so many um, uh, fields in uh, cognitive neuroscience, for example, decision-making, attention, etc. some domain general mechanisms. Uh, and these are not yet integrated with predictive computation yet. So people study predictive computation but, for example, there is a big field of decision-making, perceptual decision-making. There is a big field of attention. How do these mechanisms come together with predictive coding, predictive computation? I think it is the next big question uh, in the field. Uh, what now we are trying to realize, we are trying to understand how predictive computation may work uh, for a certain, let's say, system in the um, you know, brain. But I think in the long run, if we want to have unified theories of cognition, brain, uh, we somehow uh, have to bring together all these different pieces of knowledge and you know, integrate it into a big computational device or something like that. So you mentioned feed-forward mechanisms and some people are saying that recursive neural networks which include loops uh, can result in a subjective experience while you are trying to sort out different uh, different sorts of information. Do do you think that can be the case? And second of all, why is why would that be the case? Can you make an argument for that? Uh, 
Yeah, so recurrent neural networks are definitely some architectures people use for predictive computation, for example, for implementing predictive computation, mm -hmm. because you can think of predictive computation at an abstract level, but at the end, if you would like to model that, you need some architectures. And recurrent neural networks are definitely some architectures people use, and it is so natural and it is so, um, you know, grounded in uh, traditional artificial intelligence, you know, you have a normal uh, feed-forward neural network, and then, uh, you know, if, for example, uh, this uh, feed-forward neural network uh, corresponds to, for example, the stimulus from the outside world, it comes to it comes from retina to LGN to Viva, so mm -hmm. your feed-forward neural network can actually uh, represent that, but then if you have prior knowledge, if your higher level brain regions are actually interacting with the uh, stimulus processing hierarchy, then you will have these recurrent connections from higher level regions to lower level regions. This is the typical way of doing things right now mm -hmm. uh, in the predictive computation framework as well. So in that sense, they seem quite uh, predictive. <laughs> they seem quite... Um, uh, yeah, satisfactory right now for the kind of things we try to understand. Uh, but, um, you know, um, now there's also the deep, deep neural networks, for example. Some people say that, you know, we don't need that deep neural networks to understand the brain because it reduces understandability or interpretability. Yes. Some people say that, you know, we can be, I mean, we can be okay with a shallow network. Uh, with all a few recurrent connections. So I think it just depends on uh, at what level of analysis uh, you would like to study your um, you know, interested topic, right? So if, for example, let's say that I'm interested in action perception, and if all I want to do, all, all I want to understand in action perception is what parietal region is done, but what parietal region does during action perception, then I may have just a two-layer network where I have one representing V1 and the second layer will be parietal and maybe a third layer that would bring some primary knowledge and recurrence connection from, uh, for example, maybe primitive cortex to parietal and then that would be enough. But if your aim is to model the whole set of cascading processes, then I may have a deep neural network where I have actually V1, V2, V3, V4, and then, you know, parietal and primitor, etc. And then you will have recurrent connections. The, the, the thing is that um, you can build all these models, but it will come to the, the, the question is how biologically plausible those models would be and then the only way you can test it is to actually compare your model simulations with, uh, with empirical data, right? Once you have uh, the right uh, experimental tools and you know, do those experiments, get behavioral data or biological data, neuroscience data, and then compare with your models, we uh, may make some progress. They may not give definite answers, but we will still make progress. Thank you for the answer. As we have mentioned, you, you have some papers using neural, neural networks and we have talked quite a little bit about them. Uh, you know a lot about visual perception also. Where do you stand on the upcoming debate on whether or not GPTN will have a mind? <laughs> yeah, so I mean, uh, it's kind of a, on the one hand, difficult question, on the other hand, uh, it has a kind of... Um, 
a short answer to. So the the answer is that we can build a lot of you know nice models, and this is great because models allow us to uh, precisely specify what kind of computations might be uh, carried out by neurons, and uh, as a result of these simulations, we may get some output and we may compare these outputs to neuronal behavior or normal human behavior. So that is great. So this is why instead of just talking conceptually, having something precise and having something working is great mm -hmm. on the one hand. But on the other hand, you know, if you're a modeler, you know, if you're a computational modeler, you would know that when you are doing your models, you make a lot of assumptions, right? To make your to, to make your models work, right? You set a parameter in a certain way, or you do an abstraction at a certain level, etc., etc. And you always question whether this is biologically plausible or not, right? In order to make things work, in order to get some results, we always do some, uh, and it is necessary to do that. But at the end of the day. Uh, you know, uh, there are definitely missing parts that, that we didn't understand. We make an assumption because probably we don't know it well, etc. So this is why you may build a device that resembles uh, the human mind, but the architecture itself doesn't necessarily mean that the mind works that way, right? That is the question. And this is this is a problem, you know, in, in physics, for example, people in decades, uh, you know, uh, centuries, people have discussed this problem, right? So, for example, when an apple falls on the ground, when they drop it, it falls to the ground. Why is that so, right? You can say that an angel does that. You can say that a gravity does that. You can say something else. So you can say, and you can have... A lot of theories that would do that, but then the question is which one is more plausible, right? So usually if you look at the philosophy of science literature, for example, especially people who study physics or people who study chemistry, biology, and not cognitive scientists, the answer is that you should probably choose the model that makes the best predictions about future. So, for example, let's say that you have two models, and these two models explain all the existing data variables, okay? So I have all these uh, empirical data, and I build two models. They have two different architectures. One is predicting uh, the phenomena, the other is predicting in the same way, right? Okay. So I have these. They, have, they can explain the existing. But then, if one of the models is actually predicting more than what is existing, for example, if using the same model, you can actually talk about, for example, let's, th let's think about uh, the, the neural networks for, let's say, human visual perception. For example, I may say that I have two models that explain visual perception, and let's say that it, they explain everything. But then I have an interest. For example, if in this model I have a lesion in parietal cortex, and this may uh, represent a patient, for example, who has a damage in the parietal cortex, right? What, what is a lesion? Lesion. Lesion is basically damaging a brain part, huh, yeah, okay, okay. a brain region, okay? okay? So let's say that uh, you have, um, you, you don't have any, let's say, patient data, real patient data, mm -hmm. where there is a damage uh, to parietal cortex. And let's say you have a visual test and you don't know what would happen to a person 
if they have a damage in the carotid cortex. You don't know that. Sure. But let's say that you build a model that actually does everything a healthy person would do, right? But uh, you would like to see what would happen if you damage the carotid. So in your model, you can virtually damage Mm-hmm. the parietal cortex, okay? And once you damage, you can see how the network behaves. Sure. And let's say that the network behaves in a certain way. Mm-hmm. When you have a patient who has a damage to their parietal cortex, you have the chance to see whether this network or this model can actually predict the data well. Yeah. Okay? So, if that model is making a good prediction about something that we don't know yet, Mm-hmm. but the other model is not, then I would prefer that model. Yeah. Or, for example, you don't have to confirm all the time, but if a model is making good predictions or a lot of predictions about future, testable predictions, it is also another way of choosing that. Yeah. And from a philosophic point of view, everybody knows Occam's razor, right? So you can also say that, well, I'm going to choose the model that is the simplest one. Yeah. You know, you can also say that. But, you know, these are all some maybe pragmatic decisions that we make. Uh, and it's, I think, in the hands of the people you know, who study biology, especially for neuroscience or for psychology, um, you know, to find out which model would be good. So, you know, as people say, all models are wrong, some models are useful. So we should basically see models as nice tools you know, for us to, you know, precisely explain, describe, you know, a cognitive or biological phenomenon, mm-hmm. uh, but uh, we should be aware of their limitations as well. Okay. So, I think there is a, there might become a field that is similar to artificial neuroscience, where, where you try to understand how neural networks work, you know, how how do they process data because they are currently a black, black box, as you know and uh, since you worked on computer engineering and neuroscience at the same time it might be appealing for you would you consider on working something on like that? You mean like developing a like model that needs the brain kind of thing? No, no like trying to understand the mechanisms of trying to interpret the black box. Ah. Yeah, I am talking about that kind of research. Yeah, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I think this is, as I mentioned earlier, uh, I think this is one of the um, kind of things that people um, um, criticize about deep neural networks, for example. In shallow neural networks, it is easier to interpret certain things, although there are still things that you may have a hard time interpreting. But as neural networks become deeper and deeper, uh, it gets more complicated. So I think the short answer is that um, um, I think I'm someone who would like to uh, see the biology. Who I, I'm someone who would like to do the right experiments. You know, I have a question in mind. Mm-hmm. I would like to do the right experiment to test that. Yeah find the neural data that correspond to that question, and then once I have that, and not only one experiment, usually a series of experiments, then I can come up with a model or a theory about that. 
So usually one experiment is not enough. Usually a series of experiments should be there. So this is why uh, when you have a look at a neural network, uh, having I mean looking at, a, at looking at it as a as a let's say black box uh, may be useful uh, at a certain level, but when your question is more about the computations carried out, you need to go inside that black box. So uh, neural networks can do this to a certain extent, I think, mm -hmm. uh, depending on what you know, depending on the you know learning algorithm, maybe depending on the uh, what what kind of things you attribute to the weights, for example. So I think the question is, um, you know, at what kind of level uh, you would like to understand the neural networks, if what you'd like to do is use neural networks as a tool you know, to model or simulate some behavior, then the interpretability may not be that important, right? But if you really uh, ascribe some meaning to what's happening in this network, uh, so then that becomes um, important. I think at this point, uh, I'm, uh, I'm really interested in um, understanding what is happening. Uh, but on the other hand, I know that uh, whenever uh, we try to model the things uh, that we'd like to explain, we always abstract away. <laughs> so I may not be, I don't know, I may not be, for example, um, uh, modeling the iron channels or something like that. I may be at a more abstract level. So. So in that sense, um, I think you need to accept what level you are working with. Uh, and then if you want to understand the lower level, you need to go and implement those. But then the question is, if you try to implement everything, do you have the enough computational power to do that? So if you want to implement everything at different levels of analysis, from molecular to cellular to you know, system, so then you need really powerful computers, powerful... And, I mean, this was the thing, uh, for example, at UCSD, when I was at UCSD with my PhD in 2013, there was this brain initiative that Obama started, right? Wow. And that, that it has been 10 years now. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, 10 years, the, the whole excitement was that we will record from millions of neurons. Uh, and we will basically understand how these millions of neurons work together. And after 10 years, we are not still in the, at that stage. Uh, the only, I think, the, the, the, the thing that we did so far is that to develop the technology to be able to record from those neurons. And people have been recording, but then there is the data mining part where we try to understand. And then you cannot just record, uh, you know, from these neurons, you know, under, at random times. You also need to do some tasks, for example, maybe an attention task, maybe a memory task, maybe a cognitive task. Then you need to see how these millions of neurons are working under these task conditions, and you need to model these. So it requires a lot of computation. So uh, this is why uh, I think maybe this is why we have to abstract away uh, because we don't have that much of power right now.
And it seems to work even though we abstract away ChatGPT's power of languages. I believe unexpected. Is is it also unexpected for yours? ChatGPT, you mean? Yeah, yeah, language ability specifically. Yeah, so I'm not an expert in language uh, processing per se, like natural language processing, but sure. um, so ChatGPT is quite amazing, you know, uh, quite amazing if you think about that. But you can see its flaws, you know, if you're a, if you're a, you know, if you're a human, <laughs> right? Uh, so you can see its flaws, um, you know. Uh, first of all, you know, at a semantic level, right, or at a topic level, let's say, right, you can judge whether it is saying something correctly or not. So sometimes, you know, I, I kind of played with it a little bit in a more scientific uh, context. So, for example, I ask it, you know, there is this paper, it says this, how about this paper telling this, how do you compare them, etc. Well, it, it definitely gives some answers, but you cannot trust that. Sure. Because, you know, it doesn't give correct Or sometimes, for example, it misses, it misses things. So, for example, let me give you an example. My sister is also an assistant professor at another university. And um, we have, because our surnames are the same, and we are working on very similar topics. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I uh, enter uh, my my sister's paper, mm -hmm. uh, it basically tells things about Yours. my paper. <laughs> so you know, it's not that smart. It <laughs> doesn't know that we are sisters, although these are you know these kinds of things. So uh, definitely, there are things uh, that are um, uh, that are uh, problematic. So I cannot rely just on that. But there are definitely things. Uh, I think the, quest, the, the the answer is that we have to find a way to work with it uh, in a way we can benefit from it, uh, but we cannot fully trust it uh, because I think we are not at that stage yet. Sure. Uh, like the brain, you know, like the brain models, for example. You know, we we still haven't understood. I mean, the thing is that we haven't still understood the brain and. The way we can work with models is that we can only build models in the way we understand the world, right? If you understand the world in a certain way, you can build models in that way. But if you haven't understood something, you know, well, then the model that you will build will only reflect what you have understood. Sure. So this is why... Um, you know, so for example, whenever I, uh, I give my Psych 101 course, uh, we have discussion hours, that, that uh, example uh, just uh, come to my mind. Uh, so, for example, there is a discussion hour question, which is, can we ever um, uh, transfer our memory to a computer? Oh, yeah. So, yeah, good one. Huh. So, so this question is, you know, it, it has been a topic in movies, etc., right? Okay. So, but the question is sometimes an impulse one. Impulse one means the following. So, let's say that I, so the, the, the problem is impulse because the way we ask the question is that as if our memory is a storage device. Yeah. So we are thinking like our memory, all of our experiences are stored like in a, in a hard drive mm -hmm. and I'm basically taking this hard drive, the, the content in the hard drive and transferring it so the way it is asked is the is, is, is wrong. Yeah, it Actually, is an assumption. Yeah, because the, the, the way we see today memory is that memory is not storage. Sure. Memory is a process. Memory is a dynamic process. 
which involves encoding, retrieval, for example, when you retrieve your memories, you actually reconstruct your previous memories. This is why we actually alter our memories, etc. So unless you can model or you can understand these processes, it doesn't make much sense to... So what, what would happen? Let's say that I have this existing knowledge, I transfer it into a device. But I'm changing it all the time. You know, I'm changing it when I'm retrieving that information. How would you, how would you model that? So this is why I think the first thing we need to do is, yes, we need technology. Yes, we need good recording devices. Yes, we need good computational models. But also we need good minds to actually know, to, that know uh, how to study the brain. Yeah. So um, you have touched on the distrust to artificial intelligence a little bit because of the misinformation that it is kind of related to this. So uh, you have some studies about androids and how do you think it relates to the development of androids and how civil do you expect humanity to be even when we know, even when we know whether or not the android is conscious at some point? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, yeah, so of course, the the kind of studies we do are um, the the kind of studies we do have the uh, motivation that uh, the the AI, the Android robots, etc., are becoming more and more popular in our world, mm-hmm. and uh, we will be interacting with them. Yeah, and. Our motivation is let's understand how we interact with them, how we perceive them, so that we can be ready, you know, uh, for the next generation of AI, maybe, right? Uh, and also from a pragmatic perspective, also to give some um, feedback to engineers because nowadays robots are developed in a manner uh, where you know usually uh, feedback from users are not. Button. So usually, for example, you would like to build a robot that, um, let's say, that entertains a person, right? And then you build, you build that robot in such a way that, um, you know, it basically sings songs or it basically shows photographs to you or something like that, right? Uh, and then you may not be paying much attention to the appearance of the robot, for example. Yes. So, and this is, this brings up the phenomenon of Ancani Valley, for example. Ancani Valley is a term where Mori, uh, like a roboticist, uh, a Japanese roboticist proposed in 1970s, he basically said that if you see a robot that is not very human, you may actually find it very uh, nice. You may say that like an industrial robot, for example, you may say, oh, you know, this is such a nice robot, it does my job, etc. You know, it, it, it makes my life easy. Mm-hmm. But when the robot becomes so human, almost human, like some of the realistic androids, we are actually, we, we are finding them creepy. We even find, oh, you know, this is something weird. We even, like, we are afraid of them, right? Especially uh, the, the topic that you mentioned, we may think that they are conscious or something like that, and we are afraid of that, right? Mm-hmm. So this is the thing uh, Maury said. He said that there is a non-linear relationship between the human likeness of a robot and people's 
reaction to that robot, mm -hmm. right? So we would like to avoid uncanny valley. So, for example, if you are if you are developing robots, you know, as an engineer, right? You probably need to develop some robots where you don't make people creep out, right? So you need to develop. So this is something, um, for example, a lot of uh, animate, animators take seriously, you know, when they are making movies, these three animation, 3D animation movies. So for example, whenever they create a character, they usually ask people around, do you think that this um, character is uncanny? Mm -hmm. Do you think that, so for example, for the movie Avatar, yeah. uh, people have, for example, thought that if the character was not blue, rather it was like beige, mm -hmm. people would think that this would be really creepy mm -hmm. because it has this blueness that is something that you would not really expect much, you know, from a human, it actually makes quite nice. But if you make it like a really beige, the skin-like color, mm -hmm. maybe it would be so creepy because of its facial configurations, etc. Yeah. Similarly, you know, the movie Polar Express, uh, you know, the character Gollum in Lord of the Rings, etc. So think about all this. So, Antennaville is definitely, and then in robot design, it is even more important because in animation, you can create a character and you can change it as you want. <laughs> but once you develop a robot, there is no way back. You know, you develop it and that is it. So this is why one of the motivations that we have in our uh, uh, robotic studies is that uh, this um, uh, the proto in the prototyping stage, we need to have the human input. Engineers. So, for example, you develop a robot, maybe it's a robot for elderly. Let's say that you develop a robot that will be a companion for a lonely elderly at home. Yeah. Or you may have a robot that is a tutor for a, let's say, elementary school kid. Or requires different needs. Yeah, yeah. So, there are all these different needs. And some, for example, if you, for example, there, there's this co uh, robot called now robot, like small robots. So these are for kids, for example. <laughs> but if you give these robots to elderly, they wouldn't yeah. like them, you know. So th this is why uh, every robot, uh, uh, there is no domain general robot that can do everything for anyone. <laughs> so we have all these domain specific robots, which means that uh, when you are developing robots, you need to think about the user requirements. Right, what what users need, and this is why you don't want the robots to you know to uh, fall into uncanny valley because you don't want to creep out people or um, you don't want people to be uh, unhappy you know with the kind of things they have. So this is why um, it's important to interact with engineers, social scientists and engineers, cognitive scientists and engineers should actually talk to each other more frequently. And uh, rather than making robots in an ad hoc manner. So this is the kind of stuff that we are trying to do, basically. You know, whenever we study how people, how humans perceive robots, interact with robots, we always have the, uh, you know, uh, the, the idea that we, we should maybe, if, I, if we understand how humans perceive them, we can give feedback to, um, you know, engineers. But on the other hand, of course, we have our own questions, which is basically, how do humans perceive robots, you know, and how is it different from perceiving other humans or animals, for example? Yeah. Yes, so um, you have talked a lot about your work, so what, what can we expect from you in the future? <laughs> what does the future hold for your work? 
Okay, so thanks for asking this question. Um, I have very exciting, we have very exciting projects right now. Uh, we have a new Tubitac project um, uh, that is starting uh, and uh, we would like to extend our work uh, in the field of real-world neuroscience. So what does it mean? Well, the question is the following. So we are, we are building a lot, uh, we built part of it, and we are now uh, integrating more mm -hmm. uh, with some neuroimaging techniques. So um, there is this traditional um, you know, way of doing psychology, cognitive psychology, cognitive science, cognitive neuroscience research, which is basically using depictions of stuff you are interested in. What does it mean? So, for example, uh, if you are interested in object recognition, what do you see? Normally, in the real world, for example, this is a cup, right? And uh, normally, if I want to understand how a human would recognize an object, what I would do, I would pick the person, participant, I would show them this bunch of objects, and then I would uh, test their object recognition. For example, or actions, for example, I study action perception, what would you do? Uh, if you are studying um, action perception, uh, I will have you as a subject and then I will bring a bunch of people, they will do some actions. And, well, this, this should be the way we study. But yes. for practical reasons, we never do that. If you look at the literature, the way object recognition is studied is that you usually should, uh, have a computer and on this computer you show pictures. The pictures yeah. of objects, you show pictures of okay. objects. Or you, for example, show videos of people, right? Uh, and then people observe these videos, people observe these um, pictures, and then you record brain activity or behavioral uh, you know, uh, findings. And then the question is the following. I think this is more and this is becoming more and more questionable because now neuroscientists are asking the following. Is, uh, are the neural activities that we record, do the, I mean, are the neural activities we record reflecting um, what is there out there, what is out there? So we choose the following. When I see an object, when I record my brain activity while I'm seeing an object picture, is it the same as seeing the, seeing the object itself? Yeah. Uh, so there is a big assumption that we do that, and all the work so far is based on depictions, pictures, videos, etc. And especially for action perception research, it is more challenging because, for example, in especially in neuroimaging, with EEG studies, fMRI studies, etc., one concern we have is that whenever you present your stimuli, for example, whenever you present your object, for example. Uh, you want to uh, have your brain activity uh, fade away, you know, fade a little bit and delay, and then you start the neural, you, you kind of trigger the neural activity for another object, right? Mm -hmm. For example, when you show the object in more practical terms, you show this object, and then you need to make this object invisible, then you make the, you show the second object. And this is easy in a computer task because you show the object, then you show a gray screen, then you show another object, you show the gray screen, then you show another object, etc. And you can precisely time it. So, for example, I can say that I show this object, right, and then for two seconds, then 
for another two seconds, I'll show the other. Because seeing, you know, the duration, if the durations of the objects are different, maybe the brain differences are due to the time differences, right? So this is why if you use a computerized test, you can control everything very well. And this is one of the reasons in traditional neuroscience research, cognitive neuroscience research, we use depictions, pictures or videos. Mm -hmm. But we believe that we come to a stage where we have the necessary uh, technical tools to actually now go beyond these depictions and use the real objects and people. So this is why it's called real-world neuroscience. So we are actually planning now, uh, as far as I know, uh, you know in, a, in a systematic way for the first time, to put the real people in the lab. This will be still be this still will be um, you know lab experiments. Mm -hmm. uh, so we will not, for example, record people while they are in the nature. <laughs> so uh, I think we, we shouldn't go that much yet. yet. Uh, but uh, our idea is that uh, we have now a new setup uh, where we have a transparent screen. Mm -hmm. So this transparent screen is like an LCD screen. But that screen is like a you know window. It's like a window. It's just transparent, okay. but it's a digital screen. Mm -hmm. So you basically uh, there is a participant that comes and through that uh, digital screen, which is like a window, yeah. the participant is seeing the actor, a real person. And then while they are interacting, whenever you want to make the actor invisible, yeah. we make the transparent screen opaque. Yeah, nice. Exactly. Nice. So we have this nice setup right now, and we are uh, planning to integrate it with EEG. So in the upcoming years, our uh, whole uh, uh, set of studies will consist of um, uh, uh, comparing these real world uh, conducting these real-world neuroscience studies, but while we are doing that, we will still continue doing the video depiction work because mm -hmm. what we end, what we want to do at the end is to okay. compare, yeah. you know, how the neural activity for depictions, uh, how are they different from the real-world things, and maybe we will we have to update our textbooks. Maybe in the real world, uh, you know, they are different. And one example I usually give for action perception is as follows. So, for example, uh, if you are in a cinema, right, mm -hmm. in, in a movie theater, or if you are watching a movie, for example, and you see someone waving to you in the video, mm -hmm. when somebody waves, you probably don't wave back, right? Well, you just watch it, the person is not there, there is no physical presence, there is no social presence, you just watch it. But when there is someone in front of you who is waving to you, you would just wave back. Just the attentional skills, the motor skills, etc., they are so different from each other. This is why uh, we are trying to see how the social affordance, actability, you know, uh, in the presence of real actors, how they, uh, uh, how, uh, they change neural activity and behavioral activity, so this is, the, I think, uh, kind of way things that we will do in the next maybe five, ten years. Yeah, it, it might be revolutionary, so good luck on that. Thank you so much. Thank you for coming to this podcast. Thank you for giving me this chance. Uh, yeah.
Thanks. Thank you. Thank you so much for giving me this opportunity. So I wish uh, everyone uh, a great journey. Hopefully, the people who are listening to this podcast. the people who are uh, you know, in this field or who would like to build a career in this field. Mm-hmm. So I hope everyone, I wish everyone a good uh, you know, time in enjoying cognitive science and neuroscience. Thank, thank you so much for coming again. Thank you.